I'm going to ask Fiona and Dave to come and join me. And uh, I want to explain a little bit about a course called Christianity Explored, which is going to be running in the new year. The Evangelism and Discipleship uh, team or committee have been looking at this. We're very fortunate to have Fiona and Dave with us this year. Um, Dave's from England, as you will gather in a minute or two. Fiona's from here and a member of the church, their husband and wife, which is another connection. And um, <laughs> they're studying in Belfast Bible College, and they have run lots of these courses in the church that they go to in Manchester called Platt, and they're going to help us work our way through one of those as well. So that's you introduced. Um, what I want to say simply is that uh, we're planning to run it on Tuesday nights in February and March. There's going to be a taster event, at least one. Uh, having thought about it, I think we probably need more than one, but there's going to be at least one, uh, probably in the Balmoral Halls at the King's Hall, uh, done jointly with Chris, uh, Christ Church. In fact, they're the ones who are organizing it and happened to mention it, and I thought, oh, great. Um, so we're hoping to join with them at an event on the Wednesday night, the 18th of January, when they're going to be doing an introduction to the course. Young Andy Trimble, uh, whose name's becoming uh, well-known these days, is going to speak at that as well and talk a bit about his Christian life and his Christian commitment. And it's an event to which you are uh, encouraged to invite friends, particularly if, they, if you think they may be at all interested in doing the Christianity Explored course. So you can keep a note of that date. There's a reference made to it in, in this month's Buzzline. The information is in there. We'd like you to think about who it is you would like to invite and to keep that date free for the 18th. This morning, we're going to give you our own kind of taster, which is a kind of introduction to the key themes that appear in Mark's Gospel. The course is based around Mark's Gospel, and that's why we have these great letters in front of us here. Well, one's behind Fiona. We, did, we were trying to insist that Fiona goes up there and speaks from up there, but she didn't seem to be having anything to do with it this morning. So there's an I, an M, and a C, the purpose of which will become very clear as we work our way through this particular session with you together this morning. But I'm going to begin and hand over to David, who is Mr. I. Great. Um, well, now Dave's really got you thinking, wondering what these letters mean. Uh, Rico Tice, um, who based the, Rico Tice, who made the Christian Explored course, based the uh, Mark's Gospel around these themes of I being Jesus' identity, M being Jesus' mission, and C being Jesus' call. And I would like to encourage you, if you, if you haven't had the opportunity already, to read Mark's Gospel for yourself. Uh, perhaps to read it in one sitting, and you can actually use this as a, a framework to think about what actually this passage of Mark's Gospel is, or this section, whether it's relating to Jesus' identity, his mission, or call. And you could perhaps put an I or an M or a C in the margins of your, of your Bible as you think about that. So I'd encourage you to do that. So the big question that I've been given this morning is Jesus' identity. Who is Jesus? And this covers the first eight chapters of Mark's Gospel. You'll probably need a, a Bible to hand. It's going to be a, a whistle-stop tour this morning. So if you turn with me to the very first sentence of Mark's Gospel... And it says, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Just look at the title Mark gives Jesus in his very first sentence. He calls him the Christ, the Son of God. Let's be clear about this. When Mark makes this claim, it's a massive one. Christ is not a surname for Jesus. I mean, you couldn't look him up in the AD 30 Palestine phone book under the letter C's. Christ is a title from the Old Testament, meaning God's anointed king. Jesus is God's king ruling with God's authority. Throughout Mark's Gospel, Jesus describes himself as the Son of Man. And for those who are making notes, um, you can find this in chapter 2, verse 28, chapter 8, verse 31, chapter 8, again, verse 38, 
And the, the key verse in Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 45. But to understand this sort of man phrase, you have to go back to the prophecy of Daniel. And it's found in Daniel 7, verse 13 and 14, where we read that the title, the Son of Man, is given to the one whose everlasting kingdom would have authority, glory and power over all peoples, all nations and all men. So Jesus claims this title of divinity for himself. Having made this claim, sorry, Roy, runs the next point here. So he made this claim for himself. Um, Mark gives us the evidence um, through his gospel and how Jesus demonstrates his power and authority in various ways. We first of all see in his, uh, his power and authority to teach. Jesus walks in without any proper theological training into this world and kind of says, look guys, take it from me. I tell you on my own authority. It seems incredibly arrogant, doesn't it? Mark and the Gospels are full of this style of teaching. And you can find it right here in chapter 1, verse 21. Jesus is in the synagogue and begins to teach. But the people in verse 22 of chapter 1 were amazed at his teaching. Why was that? Well, it says, because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. The next thing to consider is Jesus' power and authority over sickness. I don't know if you remember the prophecy of Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus enters the scene, where he talks about God's anointed one who would open the eyes of the blind and stop the ears of the deaf, make the mute tongue shout for joy, and the lame leap like a deer. One in Mark's Gospel, in chapter 7, we read of the healing of the deaf and mute man. In chapter 8, we read of the the healing of the blind man. And in chapter 2, if you flick over... And Mark's Gospel read that just a word from Jesus heals the paralysed man. He gets up and walks. I'm sure if you've been there, you'd have echoed the words of the crowd in verse 12 of chapter 2. We've never seen anything like this. This man's words are so powerful that just a word and the sick are healed. Then there's Jesus' authority and power over nature. If you just flip through to to chapter 4 of Mark's Gospel... And in verse 37, chapter 4, verse 37, we find Jesus and his followers in a boat on the Lake of Galilee when a furious storm blows up. I mean, these are professional fishermen, scared witless by one of the worst storms they've ever experienced. And in verse 38, the disciples think their number is up. And in their terror, they wake up Jesus and say, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? And what does Jesus do? He gets up and simply says, Quiet, be still. And in verse 39, immediately the wind dies down and all is completely calm. But just look at the disciples' response in verse 41 of that chapter. The disciples were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. You see the question Mark is trying to get us to ask. This Jesus, who is he? Surely, the only one who might possibly control the wind and the waves is the one who made them in the first place. But that's not all. Even more incredibly, in the next chapter, chapter 5, Jesus demonstrates power and authority over death. If you just turn to chapter 5 under the heading, A Dead Girl and a Sick Woman. And in that chapter, in verse 36, we read that Jesus says to Jairus, Don't be afraid, just believe. Now you have to be either pretty confident or pretty sick 
to say this to a man who's just received the worst news of his life, that his daughter has just died. Don't be afraid. Just believe. You can't possibly think of Jesus as a, a good teacher if he says that sort of thing and then doesn't perform. But of course, Jesus does perform. He says in verse 39, This child is not dead, only asleep. Well, of course, the child was actually dead. But for Jesus to wake someone from death is as easy as it is for me to wake someone who's been asleep. Who can have authority over death? That's a frightening authority. But if Jesus is God, the creator of life, then it's perfectly possible for him to have power over death. Well, amazing though all this power and authority is, there's one final way Jesus demonstrates his divine nature, and it's the most outrageous of the lot. If you flip back to chapter 2 again, chapter 2, verse 5. In this verse, Jesus claims to have power and authority to forgive sins. Jesus says to the paralytic in verse 5, Son, your sins are forgiven. How can Jesus say such a hurtful thing to a paralyzed person? What could be most, more on PC than that? But Jesus is showing us here that Jesus and God treat sin seriously. In fact, Jesus wants us to know that sin is our biggest problem. It's even more serious, according to Jesus, than this man's paralysis. And you can see in verse 7 how the religious leaders react. They are horrified. Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. How, who can forgive sins but God alone? See, when Jesus claims to forgive sins, he's actually saying he is God. It's no wonder that the religious leaders don't take long in beginning to plot against him. To them, Jesus' words are blasphemy. Well, they are, if Jesus isn't who he claims to be. But Jesus goes on to back up his claim by healing the paralyzed man with just a word. His words have absolute authority, both to heal the man physically and to forgive sins. So we have this tension building up in Mark's Gospel. Mark is getting his readers to, to ask the question, who is this Jesus? And in chapter 8, we have the real climax to this stage of Mark's account. Again, if you just flick to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, verse 27. And Jesus is alone with his disciples at this point. And he asks the question to his disciples, who do people say I am? And the disciples reply, well, some say John the Baptist, or they say Elijah, and still as one of the prophets. And then he gets uncomfortably personal, and he asks, but what about you? Who do you say I am? And the drum roll kicks in, and Peter declares, you are the Christ. Um, so we've just seen how Peter finally grasps who Jesus is um, in that chapter, uh, Mark chapter 8. Pennies drop for Peter and he understands who Jesus is, who it is who's in front of him. And then in chapters 8, 9 and 10, Jesus brings it on and he starts to explain why he has come, what his mission is, and that that's what the M is for. But earlier on in Mark, we see how Jesus has already been preparing the ground. He's already been giving some hints about the nature of the mission that he's come with. So if you could just flick back to Mark chapter 7. At the start of this chapter, uh, we see Jesus having a discussion with the Pharisees about the whole question of what makes someone unclean or unacceptable in God's eyes. The Pharisees are, are claiming that it's outward things that are important. People are unacceptable to God because of what they touch, where, what they do, where they go, what they eat, and all of that kind of thing. But here we see Jesus challenging this thinking. He says that the problem is much deeper than that. 
look at verse 18. He says, Are you so dull? Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? In verse 20 he goes on, It's what comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly. All of these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. So Jesus is is clearly saying here that we have a problem. And our problem is not just about our outward behaviour. It's something much more deep-rooted than that. The problem is our hearts. Something is critically wrong with them. We don't love God with all our hearts. Uh, We have rebelled. And Jesus says here that we need a solution. And the reason he says we need a solution is because there are consequences uh, to our rebellion. If you flip forward to chapter 9, verses 42 to 49, we see here Jesus' warning about these consequences of our rebellion. Our sin, our rebellion against God will be punished. And we should do everything that we can to avoid this punishment in hell. And so here we have Jesus making these these really striking statements about cutting off your hands, cutting off your foot, plucking out your eye, if those are the things that are causing you to sin. Much better to do that than to face punishment forever in hell. But if you you link that back to to chapter 7 we've just looked at, where is it that Jesus has said our problem lies? Well, he's already told us that our problem is in our hearts. So it's not just as simple as cutting off a hand, cutting off a foot, plucking out an eye. We can't just cut out our hearts. So we need a, a much more radical solution. And Jesus begins uh, to explain to the disciples what the solution is going to be. So looking at chapters 8, 9 and 10, we see in these chapters how Jesus predict, predicts his death three times. Uh, and these three chapters are really the key ones in Mark that unlock the rest of the book. They really explain to us why it is that Jesus came. And they also come at a a very crucial point um, in Jesus' ministry. Up until now, he's been traveling around Galilee. He's been enjoying relative popularity. He's been teaching, doing miracles, attracting quite a crowd. But through these chapters, uh, we see a definite change in his direction. He's setting off on a journey. He's going up to Jerusalem. And the whole tone of Mark's book changes here. As Jesus journeys on, we will see that his popularity starts to turn to rejection. And so Jesus' predictions of his death, they come around verses 30, 31, 32 in each of these three chapters. Um, In chapter 8, we see that the Son of Man must suffer. He must be rejected by the religious leaders. He must be killed and three days later rise again. And then in chapter 9, around the same place, verses 31 or so, he will be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him and after three days he will rise. And then again in chapter 10, he will be betrayed He will be condemned to death, mocked, spat upon and flogged and killed. Three days later he will rise. Do you catch the sort of sense of inevitability in what Jesus is saying here? This this has to happen, he says. Um, This is what he intends. This is what he has come for. So Jesus is very deliberately turning and heading towards Jerusalem, knowing exactly what he's going to face there. So how does this leave his disciples feeling? Well, they're completely thrown by it. They're totally baffled. They don't get it. And and we can understand that, I think. They're only just catching on that he's the son of God and then he starts talking about this kind of crazy suicide mission. And Mark captures for us their complete confusion regarding Jesus' mission. The disciples really show that they don't get it. 
um, if you look at those verses in Mark chapter 8, just after the first prediction, we see Peter taking Jesus aside and beginning to rebuke him. Peter had been expecting a triumphant Messiah, a king who would roll in and sort out all the problems. So all of this talk about death and suffering, it doesn't fit. He takes Jesus aside and tries to give him a bit of a pep talk. He hasn't understood. Then again, in Mark chapter 9, after the second prediction, we see how the other disciples don't get it either. Jesus has been talking to them about a way of suffering. And here we have them arguing about who's going to be the greatest. As he's trying to teach them about the cross, they're busy having squabbles about their status. They haven't got it either. And then in chapter 10, just after Jesus' third prediction, we see James and John coming to Jesus with a special request. Could they sit next to him in glory? They want a special position. Um, They want a shortcut on the road to glory. And they haven't understood that this road must go through the cross. So we see around Jesus' predictions of his death, um, Mark gives us these little glimpses into how the disciples are reacting. They are really struggling to, to understand it. So why is it that Jesus has to die? Does Jesus give us an explanation? Well, if you look on to Mark chapter 10, verse 45, and this is really a key verse in Mark's book, Jesus says here, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus says he has come to give his life as a ransom for many. In other words, he has come to pay a price so that others can go free. So we see that Jesus' death here is the rescue plan. It's through his death that there will be a solution to the problem of our rebellion. He will take the cost of it. He will take the punishment that we deserve and he will pay it himself. His life is the ransom. And we've got some very clear signs um, in Mark's Gospel as we go on to read about the crucifixion that there's something very significant going on um, as Jesus dies on the cross. If you just flick forward to Mark 15 where Mark writes about the crucifixion. In verse 33 he he tells us that an unnatural darkness falls over the earth as Jesus dies. And to the Jewish people this would be a very clear sign um, of God's anger and judgment. In verse 34, Jesus cries out to God, Why have you forsaken me? Jesus was abandoned by God so that we need never be. In his death, he took the punishment that our rebellion deserves. He gave us life as a ransom to set us free. And then in verse 38, Mark tells us that as Jesus died, the huge curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And this massive curtain had separated people from God's presence for centuries. Uh, So we see how Jesus' death opens up the way for rebels like us to come back to God. So just in summary, Jesus' mission, well, he says that we have a problem with our hearts, that we can't fix ourselves. He tells us our rebellion will be punished by God. But Jesus came to die. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. He paid for our rebellion on the cross um, and provided a rescue for us so that we could come back to God. So what's it got to do with us? And that's where the call comes in. What was Jesus' call to people? What was the implication of all of this? And right from the very beginning, uh, David started with us in chapter 1, verse 1, verse 15 of chapter 1, right from the very beginning of the gospel and the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Jesus is making this declaration, this call to people uh, to repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. 
And right at the outset, before people had any grasp of what he might be capable of or who he was or the, or the, the evidences of that that David has taken us through, right at the beginning, Jesus sets out clearly that this is a call to the people who will hear. This is going to make demands of people, a call to change. And that's essentially what Jesus drives at throughout the whole of his ministry. In, ver- in chapter 8, which has been referred to quite a number of times as one of the central focuses of uh, this gospel, and particularly in verse 34, Jesus expands on this as he discusses it with his disciples. And in verse 34, it tells us, He called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This message of denying yourself, this message of taking up your cross and of following, is a message of change, about change of direction, change of allegiance, change of loyalty, change of values, a change of a way of thinking about God, a change of the things that become most important to you in your life. And Jesus, right from the very beginning, is more or less in our face about this kind of thing. Repent and believe. The whole concept of repentance is one of turning, changing. And that's the message that comes across very clearly. And that's the call that Jesus makes, an indiscriminate call to everyone who he encounters throughout his ministry. And a call that is echoed throughout the rest of the New Testament. But we're called not only to change, we're called also to come and to die. And that's implied in this particular passage. I believe that in the early years of the 20th century, the explorer Ernest Shackleton put an advertisement in various London newspapers to try and find men who would come with him on his great expedition. The advertisement ran like this. Men wanted for a hazardous journey. Small wages, bitter cold, long months in complete darkness, constant danger, safe return, doubtful. I don't know how many uh, applicants responded to it, but it's listed there in the hundred greatest advertisements about written by a guy in the States. Jesus' call to those who would follow him is as stark and as blunt as Shackleton's advert in the, in the London press. It is that if you're going to follow the path that he takes and follow after him, then you need to be willing to be prepared to come and die. In two different ways. In one sense, dying to yourself. This denying ourselves. Dying to our own selfish ambitions and our own rebellious way of living against God. And living a new kind of life following Jesus Christ. But possibly also dying. I mean, we're all going to die. But there are people, a lot of whom Heather has brought to our attention this morning, who are at much greater risk because of their faith in Jesus Christ than most other people would be. And it might not be the price of physical death in following Christ, but it might simply be in terms of opposition. The opposition of people who have made assumptions about you, the way you think, the way you live, the way you act, and are not pleased if you make a change in those. Not pleased if you become a follower of Jesus Christ. So there is this invitation to come and die, to die to choosing to live just for ourselves in the way we want to live and living as disciples of Jesus Christ seeking to follow him and to die in the sense of being willing to take up our cross as some of those who were listening to Jesus actually will have to do at the end of their lives or later on. Like James who was executed by Herod because of his willingness to follow Jesus Christ. But we're not only called to change and to die, but we're also called to live. Because this is what Jesus says in verse 35. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his own soul? Do you want to live? Jesus seems to assume that most people do when he asks this question. 
Whoever wants to save his life well, will lose it unless they're willing to lose their lives for the sake of Christ, in which case they will find it. And the invitation is not only to change, not only to die, but to live. To save our lives. And to save our lives in two ways, if I can put it like this. One, to come and to live in the kingdom of God. To come and to live under God's rule. To come and to live under God's protection. To come and live as part of God's family and God's purpose. All the things that we've been thinking about for weeks here as we've been going through Matthew's Gospel. A call to come and live a new life. A new life following Jesus Christ. A new life with a sense of direction and a sense of purpose. But also to save our lives in the sense of that life eternally. To spend that eternity with Christ. Nobody really has any concept when the Bible talks about eternal life and eternity of what the post-death, the post-ordinary life bit means. I mean, it's incomprehensible. It's impossible to imagine. But what we do know is that the Bible makes it very clear that you're not simply an animal. You're not simply a piece of DNA that will be consumed when the world spontaneously combusts sometime in the future. You will not simply become food for worms. You are a person created in the image of God. You have a soul. And that soul will continue to live. And its destiny and where you will be and how that will be determined is determined in your following of Jesus Christ. So the call that Jesus makes right from Matthew chapter 1, right from the very first recorded words that he speaks publicly, is to change, is to die, but is to live. That's the call that he makes for us. In your Buzzline copies, if you've got a copy of Buzzline there... (coughs) You'll find information in the insert. It's the middle, sh- middle sheet. You'll find information there about the course. You will also find a series of three questions, which we were going to give you time to work on, but partly because I haven't quite got my timetable right so far this morning, we're simply going to draw your attention to it, and then we're going to highlight them for you. At the bottom of the insert on the flyer under Christianity Explored, there are three sets of questions. Do you see them there? You found them? And if, you, if the person beside you doesn't have one, make sure they can get to see one. And if you've got those three questions, we want you to think about them, but we want to try and help you think about them in the next few minutes. That's all very well, David. I mean, preaching and all that. Preaching is what we should do and what we shouldn't do. Preach, man, we've heard of this message so many times. You know, let's talk about dying and death and all of that. I don't, I don't know that we really want to hear any more of that. I think you should just sit down. Are you trying to get rid of the sea? Are you trying Absolutely. to get rid of the But I'm here. I'm at the front. I'm part of this presentation. Well, why are you here? <laughs> Well, why, why do we need to well I'll tell you time. exactly why I'm here because if you take the C out of the three of us you get two sides left on your triangle there that you're all okay. into Okay. Right. so you don't really have a half decent triangle anymore. so I'll tell you why the C is important alright first of all if we don't hear the call that Jesus makes then our lives won't be changed Okay. so you guys are great and you've told us a lovely story about Jesus And you've told us lovely stories about why he came and all the rest of it. But actually, if you don't have the sea, and if you don't hear me, and if you don't listen to what I'm saying to you, even though you don't like me preaching at you, then it won't make any difference. Our lives won't be changed at all. Essentially what it means is we won't follow Jesus. We'll simply walk out the door. We'll think, wasn't that nice? Isn't she a lovely girl? And her from Northern Ireland and all, and him English. (laughs) We'll go away, and that will be the end of it. But the whole purpose of this, the whole understanding, I mean, the thing that Jesus said, you can't get rid of me, the thing that Jesus said right from the beginning was repent. He says then to the disciples in chapter 1, follow me. He says to Matthew a little later on, follow me. You can't do away with this, because otherwise people wouldn't follow Jesus. And what's worse from my point of view, people would then not enter life 
okay, so we're all breathing, we're all pumping blood around the blood vessels or the veins and all the rest of whatever it is you have inside you. But that's one form of life. Life, as Jesus speaks about, is the life that God intended for us in relationship with God, and we wouldn't have that. And the other thing about if we don't respond to the call and if we don't sense the call that is in here, then we're likely to be disillusioned because what we'll do is we'll walk out of here with ideas in our head, and that's all we'll have. And we will be very disillusioned because it won't change anything. Actually, if we're going to get rid of somebody, I think, Dave, you and I need to stick together. Anyway, what's she doing? I know, she's a woman. I mean, for goodness sake, in a Baptist church up here. What right do you have to be up here, eh? We don't need you guys. You guys just don't get it. You just you cannot throw me out of here. Um, it's really crucial that we understand Jesus' mission as well. See, if we don't get it, if we don't understand it, we're not going to understand how serious our sin is. Jesus had to go through so much to, to rescue us from it. So, if we don't understand his mission, then we'll just carry on in our old ways. We won't have any reason to, to live any differently. And the other thing. Um, if we don't understand what Jesus says about sin and what he's done with it, well, we won't have any answer to all the, the problem of all the evil in the world. We'll continue to struggle with that and it'll really sort of get us down. But when we understand that Jesus' mission, we see that evil and sin really matter to him so much that he, he did something about it. I mean, there's a few other things. If we don't understand Jesus' mission, that he has, he has paid the ransom price and he's dealt with our sin, well, we're never going to know the joy of being forgiven. We're just going to be dragged down by, by guilt all the time. And if we don't understand Jesus' mission, that he's really dealt with the problem of our sin, well, we're going to end up with a sort of religiousness that's all about duty. It's all about behaving, about doing the right thing. So there's two problems with that. Either we'll think we're doing well, we'll get all proud and self-righteous and think we're really good, or else we'll get stuck with a, a real sense of failure of never being good enough, you know, never making it. So you really just can't leave out Jesus' mission. It's absolutely crucial. Fiona, I'm impressed. Actually, you happy with I'm that? impressed. Actually, yeah. yeah, I think you should stay. Right, I know. Yeah, I, know. I might be a woman, for, but... There's only room for a maximum of two of us up here. I think English should go. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. What are they doing coming and talking to us about identity, you know? One bill, <laughs> one yeah. Get yeah. away. Absolutely. We're all screwed up because of you people. <laughs> Get away back home. I'm speechless. No, I'm not. <laughs> um... Hang on a minute, guys. Hang on a minute. If you haven't got Jesus' identity right, if you haven't understood his identity and believed in that, then you haven't understood Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The, the, the gospel is the good news that God has broken into our world. Um, and if you haven't understood that, that his son has come to be one of us, to break into our world, then you haven't understood also that Jesus and God himself has come down and loved us and that he, he wanted to sh- show that love to us. You see, if you just understand me as a prophet or a good teacher, then you just seem as a good example to live. You understand that I am the Christ, the King, ruling in God's world. And I am sovereign. And if I'm not sovereign and I'm not King, then basically there's no motivation to your continuing your Christian life. Okay, Dave. Let him stay. Yeah, we'll let him stay. Basically, what we've been trying to do here this morning with this AMC thing is to introduce you to the structure of the course, to the way in which we use Mark's gospel throughout the course, and to challenge you, because there's another issue here. We've been listening to this this morning, we've been participating in this this morning, but there is a a fundamental question that all of us have to address as we leave here this morning. If we take off any aspect of that triangle, then do we have any meaningful joined-up understanding of who Jesus is? 
You know, if we dump, dump his identity and we, we hear about the proper way to live or a better way to live and, and about some of the things that he did which were wonderful in his mission, but have no sense of Jesus as the Son of God, the Christ, then, then we are hopelessly misled in our understanding of what it means to be a Christian. And part of the challenge that the three of us want to bring to you this morning is a challenge to think about and to pray about this course that we're going to be running. Whether you should be on it, whether you have friends that should be on it, and to think and to pray about that over the months ahead. You've got lots of time. We're giving you just more than two months warning about it, and we'll be coming back to it over the next couple of months. But the other challenge the three of us want to put to you this morning is simply this. Do you have a joined up understanding of who Jesus is? Does this make sense to you? Does this affect your life and the way you think? I'm asking that of those of us who are members of Windsor Baptist Church, you know, who have said, yes, we agree with the Constitution and the basis of doctrine and all the rest of it. But in terms of how we think about Jesus, in terms of how we respond to the gospel, in terms of how we live our lives, is it connected up, joined up, and based on this kind of message that the gospel is giving to us? But it's a question, too, for those of you who are visiting with us or who are new here or whatever, who may not be Christians. You see, this is what the Bible is all about. From Genesis to Revelation, Jesus is at the center of it. And an understanding of who he was, why he came, and our response to it is what this church is about and what the entire Christian church is supposed to be about. Presenting Jesus Christ who is Lord and who one day will be declared to be Lord by every voice that ever has lived on the earth. How do you respond to this message? That's the challenge we need to leave with you this morning. If there's any part of what we've been saying that you want to pick up with us, or if there's any aspect of, of your understanding that you want to explore and develop, then I would encourage you to come and to talk to us afterwards. I'm going to read a prayer. It's a prayer which um, appears in the uh, material that's prepared for the Christianity Explored. I'd like you to think about it. Many of you will have prayed a prayer like this before in the past. But maybe you haven't ever prayed a prayer like this. And as you listen to it, it strikes a chord in your heart and the challenge that you face this morning as we think about Jesus. If you want a copy of this prayer, I'd be happy to give it to you. Heavenly Father, I have rebelled against you. I have sinned in my thoughts, my words, and my actions, sometimes unconsciously, sometimes deliberately. I am sorry for the way I have lived and ask you to forgive me. Thank you that Jesus died on the cross so that I could be forgiven. Thank you that I can now see clearly who Jesus is and why he came. Please send your Holy Spirit to help me follow him, whatever the cost. Amen. If that's your prayer, then make every effort to live faithfully to it. If that's the prayer you would like to be able to pray but aren't, can't because you're not a Christian, Feel free to come and talk to us afterwards and we'll help you with that.